Isaiah chapter 9. So let me show you this. If you're looking for Isaiah, you see, it's like almost the dead middle of the Bible, all right? So that's where it is in mine. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you've got a phone or whatever, just type it in, I guess. Um, and we've been looking at, over the last couple of weeks, uh, the, the prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, that foretell the coming of Jesus, and it's, it's great. I, I have really loved it. They, they sort of are dropped into the middle of some of these Old Testament prophets. And some of the prophets we're not familiar with. Like the first week, we did Malachi chapter 3. Some of you had never even been in Malachi in your Bible. Um, the last week, we were in Micah, in uh, Micah chapter 5, where we are told that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. And that's amazing that, that 800 years before Jesus steps out of eternity into history. Micah the prophet is telling about it. This morning, we're in Isaiah. And uh, if you've been around the church at all, and particularly around the church at all during Christmas, this is a passage that's going to be familiar to you. In fact, uh, the Grishams read it this morning, beautifully read it this morning, uh, part of the passage that we're going to be looking at. Um, Isaiah chapter 9 and, and 6 and 7, and unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and I mean, just evokes Christmas in us. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at this um, prophecy, this foretelling of the Messiah, and, but we're going to look at it in context, which I, I want to tell you, I, I was a little worried, I've, I've never never really preached this in all of its context. Um, and sometimes you worry like, oh man, is it going to mean the same thing in context? Because there's some hard verses around it. And I just want to tell you that over the last couple of weeks, the time spent studying this, um, this passage is more beautiful to me than it's ever been. And I can't wait for us to get to walk through it together this morning. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it. So Isaiah 9, I'm going to read 1 through 7. Now, I'm going to pray that the Lord will help us, and then we're going to walk back through it um, fairly quickly, I, I think. Well, probably not, but anyways. Here we go. Isaiah 9, beginning verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You could say Galilee of the Gentiles, same word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
upon his shoulder. Uh, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to see these words. Give us the imagination to step back into the day of Isaiah and hear this. And then, Father, as we sit here in 2023, about to be 2024, and, and the truth of what you have promised echoes through the centuries and the millennia, Father, I pray you'd stir our hearts with faith this morning. You'd drench us and overwhelm us with your grace. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. It's the only way we can ask this. And by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, so let me give you a little history because this, it's a fascinating time in the world. It's about 735 BC, all right? Uh, Isaiah prophesies from about 740 BC to mm, about 7. 25 B.C., all right? 25, 30, 40-year period in there. And it's 735 B.C., and we know this because of uh, chapter 7 and who's the king up north in Israel. You know, the, the, the nation's divided at this point. You've got the northern part that's called Israel. You have the southern kingdom of Judah. And we know the king of Judah is Ahaz, and uh, you've got the northern king of Israel, and then just above Israel, you have a country, a nation, uh, Syria. Israel and Syria, they've made an alliance because they want to be fortified because there's a new nation that's rising to power called Assyria. So Israel and Syria, they've gone into cahoots with each other. In fact, so much cahoots that they actually uh, come up with this plot that they're going to go down, sneak in the middle of the night, kill Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, the uh, 10th, uh, you know, the ninth grand, great-grandchild of David. They're going to install a puppet king there so that they can get their, you know, uh, spoils and, and, and treasure and, and armies and all that stuff because everybody needs everything they have to go against Assyria because Assyria has a, a ruler named Tiglath Pilser III. And I don't really know if that's how you say his name. So we're just going to call him TP3, all right? You can go to the British Museum, and at the British Museum, they have this Assyrian um, uh, section. I mean, it's huge. It's this entire floor, and you, you can see a 20-foot statue of it. He wasn't that tall. But they made a big statue of him. You can see the reliefs that they pulled off of the walls. And in those reliefs, you can see a Syrian king 
leading a people into captivity. And those people are the northern tribes of Israel. It's the most well-documented part of, of all of this story outside of the Bible. It's all there at the British Museum. You can go see all of it. And so what's happening is you've got this Assyria that's in the north. You've got Israel that has forsaken God for the last 200 years. They're in cahoots with Syria. They're plotting against Ahaz. The whole world is scared about what's about to happen. This is the scene. You know, and if you wanted to go west a thousand miles, Rome has just begun. The legend of Romulus and Remus. Also, the world's getting ready for the 10th ever Olympics, the ancient Olympics. This is, this is the things going on in the world. This is an ancient time. And Isaiah is a prophet. He lives in the south, and he's writing these warnings to the south. He really wants Ahaz, the king of Judah, the great, 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 great grandson of David, to step in and do the right thing and lead his people. But he's a wishy-washy king. So Isaiah, he's giving these prophecies, and he's preaching these sermons, and he's and he's wanting the people of God to wake up. But they're just sort of sleeping through life, you know? It's amazing. If you go back, there are these several sort of prophecies that happen in a row that Isaiah writes about. In, in chapter 7, we're told that... Um, uh, the, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That, that's where that comes from, just two chapters before. And then there's this one, the well-known. It'll be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting. That one's here. And then you go to 11. We'll look at that next week. And there are these prophecies. This is the Emmanuel section, the God with us section. Because what happens is, Isaiah... God tells Isaiah, he says, I want you to go to Ahaz. And this is a real important part of the story. He says, I want you to go to Ahaz, and I want you to say to Ahaz, Ahaz, God really wants you to trust him. You're running around, and you're scared that somebody's going to come and assassinate you in the night, or that the Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to beat down your door. And... But I don't want you to be scared. Ahaz... I want you to trust me. This is what God's saying. King of Judah, great, 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 great grandson of David, I want you to trust me. I want to pour my grace out on you. And I want you to believe me. And there's this scene, just a couple of chapters before this in chapter 7, it sets up what we're looking at this morning. And the scene is, Isaiah was telling Ahaz the, the word of the Lord, and, and God's saying to Ahaz, he says, I, I want this so much for you, Ahaz, that, um, and I want you to believe me so much that you ask, ask me for a sign. Ask me for anything you want, Ahaz. Ask me. There's nothing too high, and there's nothing too low. Say it, and I'll give you a sign. Well, in 
Chapter 7, verse 12, Ahaz says, you know what? I'm good. It's okay. I don't need a sign. And then what he does is he, he sort of, um, this uh, uh, self-reliance, he, he, uh, he puts some uh, religious makeup on it, and he says, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be the kind of guy that tested God out. And in a moment, Isaiah, or Ahaz, when, when, when the grace of God is brought to him on a silver platter, anything you want, I'll give you a sign. He says, no, I'm good. I think I'll handle this myself, God. To which God says, fine, you want to ask for a sign? I'll give you a sign. And that is that a virgin's going to conceive and give birth. I'll show you a sign. Of course, you won't be around to see it when it happens. See, here's the deal. That's how it works. Crisis comes into our life. God wants to know, hey, are you going to trust me? Because I really want to save you. I, I so much want you to experience my grace here. He still does that to us. If we refuse him, listen, if we're, you know, believers and we say, oh, God, no, no, I'm just going to save myself. I, 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 like, I like the anxiety that I carry around. I'm not going to cast my cares on you. I'm going to keep them and handle them myself. Well, he keeps pressing us. See, God loves us so much, he's not going to let us settle for trying to save ourselves. God's grace is going to have the last word in the life of his people. His grace is going to triumph over their failure. And that's where we are in chapter 9. So when you get to chapter 9, it says, there's not going to be any gloom. This is the grace. That there's already been the judgment that's been announced. Judgment's coming. Part of the judgment is, see, listen, God says, I gave you my word. You decided you didn't want to listen to my word. By not listening to my words, you find yourself in the dark, and now you're in the dark groping around for any other voice that's not mine when all you have to do is listen to me and believe me, and the light will dawn and the light will shine, but you won't do that. But that's not going to be the last word, God says. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So, so he's talking about, hey, listen, there's a judgment and it's coming upon Zebulun and Naphtali. And you say, well, I, no, I've never been to Zebulun or Naphtali. The easiest way to describe it is it's the area of Galilee. In fact, he says it at the end of chapter 1. Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. That's that area. He's brought it into contempt. And the contempt is he's going to let Assyria, king of Assyria, the wicked, cruel king of Assyria, come down. And about 10 years from this moment, they're going to come down. They're going to wipe out the northern kingdom. They're going to load them all up. They're going to take them back to Assyria. And then the king of Assyria is going to say, hey, I got a whole bunch of real estate in northern Israel, and all these people are going to move in. In fact, it's to the day, even when you get to Jesus' day, nobody wants to go to Samaria. You know why? 
Because whoever it is that's living in Samaria, they have Assyrian blood running through their veins. And so he says, listen, there's not going to be any gloom ultimately. The last word is not going to be judgment. The last word is going to be grace. Because there is contempt that's going to come. There is this uh, judgment that's going to come. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Notice something real quick about this. Um, in, it says, but in the latter times, so he's talking about a time in the future. All right, just think about this for a second. Isaiah is pointing to a time in the future, and then notice though, he says, he has made. He's talking about a point in time in the future, and he is using past tense verbs. And the reason that Isaiah is doing this, and you see this in the, in the Old Testament sometimes, is when the Bible is talking about, when God's talking about what I'm going to do in the future, God speaks about it as though it is already done. It is the certainty of the prophecy and the foretelling of what God is going to do. I am going to take what has been disciplined, what finds itself under judgment, these people, this land, and I am going to transform it into something that is glorious. And in verse 2, he tells us what he means. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Remember, future time, past tense verbs. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has, has light shone. He's talking about a people who have been walking around in the dark, living in the dark, choosing the darkness, and yet light is going to dawn upon them. Notice in verse 2, he talks about the darkness and the deep darkness. The darkness. That means the absence of light. And when he says deep darkness, the way that Isaiah's language is in the Hebrew, it means absence of life or the shadow of death. Absence of light, the absence of life. That is why John will write in John chapter 1, he is the light of the world, Jesus is. And that light is life. God says the last word is not going to be judgment, it's going to be grace, and I am going to shine the light, and those that have been stumbling around in the darkness, step into the light, the light has come, it will dawn, not only will you be able to see, you will live, this is the promise of grace, let me say this real quick, we're going to get on with it, I have a lot to say, I want you to have all the Christmas feels here at the end, all right? But I've been doing this for about 20 years, maybe a little more. And I have, in that time and even before, I, I have talked to lots of people that are not a part of the church and would say they are not, a, you know, they don't believe, they don't have any faith, you know, they're, they have their own spirituality. And that's fine, I get that. I, I hear when people say that and, and 
you know, they tell me either how good their life is or how bad their life is. And usually at some point, if we talk long enough, they have all the crisis and all the anxieties and all the things they're trying to change. And they want next year to be better than the year before. Look at that. But over the last 20 years, one of the things or I've observed that the saddest conversations I have are conversations with people who are believers. And they come and they sit in a church every single week. And maybe they're part of a life group. And maybe they go to a Bible study. Maybe you're here this morning. And it's believers that, that on the outside, everything looks like they're okay. But here's the reality. Their life is being lived in darkness. You're living in the shadows. God keeps coming and saying to you, oh, I want you to know my grace. I want to overwhelm you with my grace. I want you to trust me. Maybe you need to repent. You need to lay this thing down or that thing down. Oh, I want the light to shine for you. Yet day after day, and week after week, month after month, sometimes year after year, you're going through all the motions. And you're saying to God, no, I'm, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to work this out on my own. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to clean this up. And then, and then when I clean this up, then I'll come to you. It's what Ahaz did. And essentially, it's saying, I don't want your grace. And when you do that, when you are forsaking the grace that God so means to pour out on you in your life, you walk in darkness. And I just want you to know something. You will never be, God loves you so much, he's not ever going to let you save yourself. You can't do it anyway. You can't fix this. In fact, that's why every one of these verbs is nothing that Israel or Judah or any of God's people ever have or ever will. It is not anything about what they're doing. It is all about what God's going to do. And it's so certain he's talking about it in the past tense. You can grope around in the dark all you want, but you will never find light. Unless you come to trust and believe. So God, I believe you. I'm going to lay this tired of the dark. I want the light here. Here. You can have this. I'm done with it. Notice what's part of this. By the way, verses 1 and 2 are absolutely fulfilled when Matthew in the New Testament is introducing to us the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He quotes this. Jesus leaves Nazareth, goes to Capernaum. You know where Capernaum is? Right there in the heart of Galilee. And Matthew says, Jesus, beginning his ministry here, 
in Galilee fulfills what the prophet said about making this a glorious way, about the light coming into the darkness. In verse 3, you've multiplied the nations, you've increased his joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. The pictures there are agrarian and, and, and military. The end of the harvest, there's the party, there's the joy, all the work. Now we feast. And we've defeated our enemies and the, and the satisfaction of, 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 of defending our our play, all this uh, is in play. And, and notice, the, the people have multiplied and the joys increase. As the people multiply, so does the joy and the gladness, right? Along with it. And the picture is celebration. This is going to be about what God does, and then our response is celebration. Our response is joy. And, and get this. It's not joy we got to manufacture or go buy or muster up. It is joy that is given to us. He increases it. He gives us the joy. He increases it. We take it and we celebrate with it. That's the picture. And you say, well, how, how can that happen? How, how does the joy come? How do, so in verse 4, he says, for, which gives us the the, uh, the, the cause of it, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. And he's talking about, uh, he's, our, he's our victor, he's our liberator, he has set us free. And he says, I want you to remember the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 through 8. When Gideon is raised up and he's going to be the champion for his people, and Midian says, I've got 32,000 people ready to fight. And God says, well, that's all right. Let's do, well, you don't need all those people. And they go through this whole process, and at the very end of it, Gideon looks around and he's only got 300. God's whittled his 32,000 army people to 300 people. I've seen people grow churches like that. They're calling me right now. <laughs> they say, and God says, yeah, I don't want you to have 32,000 people. I only is going to send you there with 300, and you're going to defeat them because when the battle's over and you're standing victorious on that battlefield, here's what I want you to know. You didn't do this. I did it. That's what he wants him to know. See, so often we're looking around for all the ways and all the research and all the things we're going to gather up so we can fix our problem. And God says, you know what? No, no, no. It's going to be like the day of Midian. When I whittled the army down, you went in with the skeleton crew, and I did all the work. And in verse 5, you get the explanation of the joy and the freedom and the reason that he's going to do that. It's because he's going to defeat, God is going to defeat all the evil forces. He's going to put a final end to conflict itself. Every mechanism of tyranny and oppression are going to go into the bonfire of God's grace. That's what he's saying. And you're going to look up. 
And all you're going to see is the fire. The conflict will be gone. Now, you say, okay, how, how is all this going to happen? All right, so we're, we're, we're a people who've been judged. We've been dragged off to Assyria. We can't, 23andMe doesn't help us with who, where we came from anymore. How, how are you going to fix this, God? What hope is there? I mean, we look around, and, and it is bleak. It is it's the worst of times. What kind of hero can show up and save the day with all of this going on? And you might think, man, it's a good question. I wonder what that hero's going to be like. I wonder who God will raise up. That's why verse 6 is one of the most surprising declarations in all the Old Testament. For to us, a child is born. How's it going to happen? How are we going to be liberated? Who's coming in with all the grace and, and all the power? A child's being born to us. Let that sink in for a minute. One writer says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. That the power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully his answer is Jesus. Oh, yeah. It seems hopeless. No big deal. My eternal son will step out of eternity into history as a child. Born to a virgin, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger because there's no room in the inn. And I'm going to announce it to some smelly shepherds on a hillside. And I'm going to bring some Gentile magi in to bring him some gifts. That's how I'm going to do it. And we get this child's fourfold name. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The wonder part, it means supernatural. It implies deity. It's the same word, same roots that used. So if you went back to Genesis 18 and you have Sarah, who's, uh, you know, almost 100 years old, and God says, um, you're going to have a baby. And she laughs, you know, all that deal. And, and then God says, is anything too wonderful for God? Anything too hard for God? The answer is no, it's not. In Psalm 139, David will use the word as he's sitting there and he's contemplating and he's meditating on all that God is and all of his majesty and all of his knowledge. And then he finally just you know, it bursts out. It's, it's too wonderful for me. I can't even take it all in. 
like a, a mosquito trying to drink the ocean. It's more than I can take in. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, or, or maybe yours says warrior God. John Calvin said it this way. He says, he is therefore called the mighty God for the same reason that he's called Emmanuel, God with us. For if we find in Christ nothing but flesh and nature of man, our glorifying him would be foolish. It would be in vain. But if he shows himself to be God to us, and the mighty God at that, we may now rest in him safely. Safety there. The child will also be called everlasting father. That's funny to me. Or father of eternity, or father for all time. Not only is he the king and, and the Lord, and is he mighty God, but he's the father who exercises care and concern. And mercy and grace, when you might could even translate it, always a father. Always. And a good one. You know, if you didn't have a good one, it's not talking about that. It's talking about a good one, the best one ever. And then he says, Prince of Peace. This is where we got to be careful. He can kind of trip us up, Prince of Peace, you know? We forget Isaiah had never been to America. And never watched Oprah. He had, you know, he, they didn't even have, it turns out, back in when he lived 700 years before Jesus, um, at, the, at the Mardell's uh, there in Jerusalem, they didn't even have a self-help section. No psychology books. He's not talking about like internal peace, your inner peace. He wouldn't even know about that. He's talking about when you look at the world and it is full of chaos and nastiness and cruelty. It's like the disciples when they're on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up and they're frightened. They wake Jesus up and says, don't you even care? You know what he says? To the, to the raging storm. The raging, anxiety-ridden disciples. Peace, be still. And immediately, it was calm. The prince of peace. We'll say this, and now you're not going to like it, but that's all right. I didn't make it up. But peace doesn't come through talk and negotiation, by the way. Not, not in Isaiah's day, not in Isaiah's thinking. It's not feeble, and it's not timid, and it didn't fear 
public opinion. It comes by force. I had a seminary professor who had a Jewish friend, Jewish friend, told him, he said, this is how we define shalom. Shalom means peace in Hebrew. Here's a good definition for shalom. Shalom means we win, you lose. Peace presupposes a victory. In fact, in the whole judge's story with Gideon, Gideon's coming through, and there are these men from Penuel, and he's got his 300 men. They need some provisions. They go to the men at Penuel, and they say, hey, we're on a mission from God, and we need some provisions. And the Penuel people, they say, mm, we, we don't think we're going to help you. We're not going to help you. So Gideon, it's a great scene. Chapter 8, I think, verse 6. He says, I tell you what. When we come back through here, when I come back here in peace, which what he means is, when I have gone and I have found the Midianites and I have, and I have wiped them off the earth for what they have done to my people, I'm coming back here in peace. And I'm going to rip your tower down. That's what it means. doesn't mean the Prince of Peace is peaceful. Although he is in many ways. But here it means he has the power to bring peace, to enforce peace. Even in a world when many don't care one thing about it. That's what he'll be called. Look at verse 7 real quick. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You could say it this way. The empire of his grace will expand forever. Never will there be a time when you think, okay, well, we must have reached the limit here. Can't be any more new grace. There will never be that time. Forever and ever and ever. Increase and increase and increase. And he'll uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. And then the very end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. We'll do this. I wish I had, I'm out of time. I wish I had time. I, you could go to the back of your Bible and look at a concordance and look up zeal and see, see how zeal's used in the Old Testament. It's, it's a passion that um, uh, burns. In some ways, what God is saying is He is describing. His passion for our salvation. His passion for us to know His grace. He will do this. Who will do this? The Lord of hosts. What will motivate Him? His passion. 
for us to know His grace. If you were in Isaiah's day, and I know you may even could say the same about our day. You look around and you think, man, everything is just out of control. There's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of... No one could ever fix all that is broken in the world right now and it just seems to be getting more broken and more broken and more broken. That's what they would have felt like in Isaiah's day. But Isaiah records it in a way, look, I know this is coming in the future, but it's already happened. It's the certainty of God. His zeal will do it. And we can relate. Even on a human level, we find ourselves running into things that are impossible, and then they become possible. I'll give you one example, and we'll get out of here. It's December of 2013. night 87,451 people will witness this in person probably the most famous maybe greatest iron bowl there ever was Alabama has gone to Auburn to play them on their home field Alabama ties it up, or Auburn ties it up at the very end. There's just a few seconds left. And with one second on the clock, Alabama is going to kick a field goal to win the game like they always do. You can just see the smugness of Nick Saban on the sideline. It's impossible. So what happens is the guy goes to kick the field goal. It comes up short. They have a, Auburn has a defensive back, Chris Davis, in the end zone, nine yards deep. He catches the ball, runs, runs out of the end zone, gets up on the left side of the, of the field and runs all the way down to the other side, scores a touchdown, 100-yard return, no time left, and Auburn beat the mighty Alabama in 2013. In, in the crowd's reaction, at the moment when he crossed the goal line and then they stormed the field, registered on seismographs across the state of Alabama. 2015 voted the greatest football play in college football history. You know what? That's a football game. Isaiah, 2,700 years ago, speaks about an event that won't just register on seismographs. It will shake the foundations of the cosmos for the sole purpose of God lavishing His grace upon you. We trust Him. We believe Him. Will you receive the grace 
that he's offering. If you would, would you bow with me and pray. Father, I pray you'd, you'd do that. You, you would do that in our hearts this morning. You'd stir our faith. We, we, we want Father, we want to be overwhelmed by your grace. You want us to be overwhelmed by your grace. But our natural thinking is, we, oh, there must be something we've got to do. We need to do more. We need to do more. You say in the prophecy of Isaiah, and on the countless pages before and after of your word, it's not about what you do. It's about what I've done. Father, I pray we would rest in that this morning. Our joy would increase and we would celebrate. We wouldn't run from you or grope around in the dark looking for some answer that we will never find. Father, we just hear your word. Watch the light dawn. And begin the now and forever increasing joy and grace and peace that will never end. So, Father, I pray you do that in us. We ask this the only way that we can, and that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, the wonderful Counselor the mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Amen. Well, if you would, would you stand with me? We'll be dismissed. Um, all right, so at the beginning of the service, Chad was talking to you about our uh, Christmas Eve service, and he, and he told you some things. And so um, if you weren't here, um, don't be late next time. because I can't remember what he said. But uh, come back next week. And then on Christmas Eve, which is a Sunday, we'll be here. Love to see you. May the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you. Amen.